In the following sermon, entitled Praying Always from the Spiritual Depression Series, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones is preaching from Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 18. He continues with what we are going to look at this morning, namely the message of this 18th verse, Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for the saints and for me, and so on. Now, it's very important that we should realize that this is a part of what the Apostle has been saying in the previous verses. This exhortation to prayer is not an additional thought. He isn't starting here on a new subject. He's still dealing with the same subject of our ability to stand against the wiles of the devil, our ability to stand especially in what he calls the evil day. Stand, therefore, he says, in, the verse, in verse 14. And then he says, well, this is the only way to stand. Put on that whole armor of God and pray. So the two things, I say, must be taken together. It isn't a new theme. It isn't uh, some uh, additional subject which hasn't an immediate uh, connection. It is something which is a very part of the provision that God has made for us in order to enable us to be able to withstand all this uh, battle which we wage against the enemy and all these fiery darts that he is so constantly hurling at us. Well, now then, we come, in other words, to consider this great question of prayer. It's a, a great theme in the Bible, something which is emphasized constantly in the Old Testament and in the New. There is no subject, I suppose, that is emphasized more than this. Uh, you find it in the Psalms in particular. There you see it in action and in practice, not so much exhortation as the psalmist, telling us of something that's happened to him and how he faced it and how he was delivered from it. And so you find that the Psalms are full of these prayers and full, therefore, of exhortations to us all to pray. You'll find it in the lives of the patriarchs. You'll find it constantly in the lives of the prophets. It's a theme, I say, which is to be found everywhere in the Old Testament. And exactly the same is uh, true of the New Testament. Indeed, we can go as far as to say this, that the biblical teaching, and especially perhaps the New Testament teaching, is that prayer is absolutely essential and vital. Now, our Lord himself has put this more clearly than anybody else. He even put it in these words. He spoke a parable to this effect that men should always pray and not faint. That's the first verse in the 18th chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke. He spake a parable to this effect that men should always pray and not faint. In other words, if you don't pray, you will faint. The only antidote to fainting is praying. Now then, what is fainting? Well, it's, I say, this very theme that's engaging our attention. This uh, theme of spiritual depression. This uh, difficulty in enjoying the Christian life and having victory in the Christian life. 
That's what he's talking about. That's what he means by fainting. And the antidote ultimately is pray. Now, our Lord repeats exactly the same thing in the 21st chapter of the Gospel according to St. Luke, in the 36th verse. Watch ye therefore, he says, and pray always that he may be accounted worthy to escape these things. He's talking about the end of the world. He's talking about the terrible things that are going to happen immediately before the time of the end. And he says, watch and pray always that he may be accounted worthy to escape these things that are coming. And as you go on through the New Testament, you'll find that the same thing is emphasized. You read the book of the Acts of the Apostles. Take the 12th chapter which we read. You'll find the same in the 4th chapter. You'll find it indeed everywhere. This constant emphasis upon the need and the absolute necessity of prayer. And as you go on to the teaching of the epistles, well, you'll find uh, the inexact repetition almost in words of our Lord's own teaching. Listen to the Apostle Paul, for instance. He says, pray without ceasing, which some have translated like this, never give up praying, or another has put it, never quit praying. Pray without ceasing. That's his advice to the Thessalonians. And he repeats it in different ways to the Colossians. He says, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. There is nothing which is more urgently pressed upon our attention in the New Testament everywhere than the vital importance and urgency of our praying and our praying without ceasing, constantly, that men should always pray and not faint. Well, very well then, clearly this is something which is of the supremest importance for us. And the apostle here, in dealing with this great question of our conflict with these unseen forces, says, yes, you do need the power of Christ himself, the power and the energy, the vigor of the Lord. You need all that armor that God has provided, that which fits onto your person and that which you protect yourself with on the outside and the sword. But over above it all and in addition and constantly as you're doing it all, always pray with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. Well, now then, let us try to look at this subject simply. It seems to me that there are two main questions which arise here at once. The first is why, why we should pray. And the second is how should we pray. Unfortunately for us, the apostle deals with both of them. They are actually the questions people always ask about this matter of prayer. There's always a good deal of confusion about it. I think most Christians, if not all Christians, have found that this subject of prayer is not an easy one. It's not a simple one. There are many manuals which deal with this question. So that obviously we should be grateful for the fact that we have this teaching and this instruction. Now, we start, I say, with the question, why we should pray? Because there is very little point in considering means and methods of prayer unless we are perfectly clear as to why we pray and as to what exactly we do when we do pray. That, it seems to me always, is the danger in connection with the so-called Catholic 
manuals of devotion. It is indeed the trouble with all methods of devotion which tend to do things uh, by rule or by rota, by number. It's the danger of any form of discipline that one becomes content with carrying out the discipline and forgetting as to why one is doing so. So we start by asking, why should we pray? Now here, uh, as I understand it, we come across something again which is very fundamental to the whole Christian position. There is nothing, I suppose, in the last analysis which provides such a thorough and such an acid test of our uh, standing as Christians than our relationship to this whole question of prayer. There are many tests that we can apply to ourselves when we want to determine uh, where we stand in the Christian faith. But there is none, I say, that tests us so thoroughly as this. Orthodoxy is a very valuable test. There are certain things we must believe. We mustn't believe the tendency at the present time to say that it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you call yourself a Christian, we can never grant that. There are certain tests. Orthodoxy is absolutely vital and essential. And the test of life is a very important one. Our conduct and our behavior, our morality and our ethics. It's no use shouting, Lord, Lord, if we don't keep his commandments. So that's another very vital test. Yes, but I say that more subtle, more delicate, more vital than them all, is this test of prayer. Because as I want to try to show you, everything else ultimately leads to this. But at the moment, let me put it in this way. The Bible surely teaches us very plainly and very clearly that it's true to say the greater the saint, the greater the amount of prayer in his life. The greatest saints have always been the greatest men of prayer. That, I say, is a proposition that can be established with supreme ease from the scriptures themselves and most certainly and definitely from the subsequent history of the Christian church. There is no doubt that prayer is the supreme achievement of the soul and that we are at our highest and greatest when we are engaged in prayer. It is therefore, I say, ultimately the test of all that we claim to believe. Now, this is something I think we'll all have to admit which we tend to forget. We have a tendency to put many things before this, as I say. Some would put nothing but uh, correctness in a creedal sense, vital though that is. Others would put their morality. Others would put their zeal and their activity. They imagine that the greatest Christian is the man who's always busy and doing things and rushing here, there, and everywhere. That isn't really the biblical test. There's a very striking comment about that in the sixth chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, where we are told that the apostles themselves uh, called upon the people to appoint uh, certain others to uh, serve at tables. It was a very good work. They were providing food for the widows and others who were in trouble. It was a most charitable, it was a most Christian work. 
And the apostles had been doing it, but they say, we can't go on doing this any longer. They said, we must give ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. And you notice the order in which it's put. Prayer comes before the ministry of the word. You must appoint others, they say, to do this. Now, this is the interesting thing. Here are men who have recently been filled with the Holy Ghost. These apostles. These men who received that extraordinary experience on the day of Pentecost and were subsequently filled again with the Holy Spirit. Well, you would have thought if ever there had been men in the church who could have gone on without praying, it was men like this. These men filled with the Spirit and of power, yet they say we must give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now there, I say, in and of itself, is sufficient proof that there is nothing that is of greater importance and more vital than prayer. And when you have men like this filled with the Spirit, they above all others see the utter, absolute necessity of prayer. Here are men, you see, who had been with the Lord Jesus Christ during the three years. They had heard his teaching. They had seen his miracles. They had beheld his death upon the cross. They were witnesses of his resurrection. He would come into the room when they were there. He would spoken to them. And yet these men, I say, who afterwards were even filled with the Spirit, they say we must give ourselves more and more to prayer. Well, if it was essential for them, how much more so is it essential for all of us? Very well then, my friends, I ask a simple but very profound question at this point. What place does prayer have in our Christian lives? How much time do we spend in prayer? Before I even ask that, have we realized that prayer is absolutely vital to us? The breath of life. How much of our time do we give to it? Do we give as much to it, for instance, as we give to reading the newspapers? Or to doing many other things which we do, but which by no means are essential in the Christian life. Where does it come in exactly? Is it just a question of saying our prayers in the morning and in the evening? I just leave it like that. Where exactly does it come in? We shall find that the emphasis here is, as I've already shown you, always, always, without ceasing without end, without intermission. It's the vital part of one's life and living. Well, now then, the question is, why should it be? We see it above all, perhaps, in the case of our Lord himself, who sometimes spent a whole night in prayer, sometimes rose a great while before dawn, went up into a mountain to pray. Constantly he was doing it. The very Son of God here incarnate in this world, he seems to have found prayer vital and essential. Why is it? Well, let me divide my answer into two sections. Let me give, first of all, certain general answers to the question, and then we'll deal with some particular ones or some detailed answers. A general answer is this. Prayer is essential for the reason that the apostle gives us in this very section. That is the power and the subtlety and the might and the ingenuity of our terrible adversary. 
I suppose ultimately, therefore, the reason why we don't pray more than we do is that we are not clear about the doctrine of the devil and of the forces of evil and of hell. Look here, says Paul, if you only realize that you're not wrestling only against flesh and blood, but against these principalities and powers and the rulers of the darkness of this world and against spiritual wickedness in the high places, well, you'd very soon realize the absolute necessity of prayer. Our Lord knew all about that. Our Lord met the devil in single mortal combat. He experienced all the power of the devil and of hell. I say it is because we don't realize that, that we fail to pray as we ought. So the first reason for praying is simply that. And if you want to know something about this power, you've simply got to read your Bible and see how some of God's greatest saints were defeated. Men like Abram, men like David, the most outstanding saints, the most glorious examples of godliness. Even they fall when the devil comes in his subtlety. You'll see it in the New Testament. Peter falls. They all fall. You see it in the subsequent history of the church. Every heresy that the church has ever known has been introduced by men who were sincere and who thought that they were promoting God's interest and God's kingdom by teaching what they taught. It's the subtlety of it all, and the greatest, I say, are exposed to it, and the greatest of all. That's the first reason. The second reason is one which is complementary to that, and is, of course, our own weakness and our own ignorance, even at our very best and at our very highest. This, again, is another prominent reason why we don't pray. We don't realize how weak we are. We don't realize how ignorant we are. The whole trouble, and especially today as I understand things, is this fatal tendency to be self-satisfied. And I fear it is because we will persist in measuring ourselves by those who are obviously below us and inferior. I mean by that because we can see so obviously that certain people who are wrong in their creed and their theology and their belief are clearly wrong, we tend to think that because we are right on that point, we are right everywhere. It is this fatal tendency, I say to, as Paul puts it in writing to the Corinthians, to judge and estimate ourselves in terms of one another and by ourselves. I'm not like that modernist, that liberal, or I'm not like that man who's guilty of antinomianism, that man who makes a profession but who obviously is denying it in his life. Well, because I'm not like that, I'm all right, my dear friend. That's a most fatal attitude. The way to test yourself is this. Measure yourself by the saints. I've often reminded you that John Wesley used to teach that he had the very poorest opinion of a Christian who didn't spend at least four hours every day in prayer. That was his test. And as you read the lives of these people, well, I say, you begin to realize something of the truth concerning yourself. Now, these men prayed because they were conscious of their own weakness. One of them put it like this in a hymn. I dare not trust my sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. You read there these hymns and you'll find they're constantly expressing it. How weak they are, how poor, how wretched, how blind. Not having anything. Well, uh, you get it again. 
in the book of Revelation. Our Lord speaks, you remember, to that church through the Spirit, and he tells her that she thinks that she is very rich and has all things, and she doesn't see her own nakedness and how poor she is. That's the trouble. Neither hot nor cold for that reason. Well, there, I say, is another very important reason for praying. Because of our weakness and our ignorance at our very best and highest, I find that one of the best ways of bringing this truth home to myself is to put it in this form, which I've been more or less suggesting. I ask myself, why did the Lord Jesus Christ pray as much as he did? Why have these saints always prayed as much as they did? And if they did so much, well, why don't I find it to be necessary? What's the matter? And there's only one answer I can come to, and that is that I am not sufficiently aware of my own weakness, my own ignorance, even when I'm at my very best and at my highest. My dear friends, we are but children in these matters. We are the merest tyros and beginners. It is because, I say, of this ignorance of ourselves without going any further that we don't pray as we ought. In other words, the high road to prayer is self-examination. And the more we examine ourselves and take time to do so, the more we shall see the need of prayer. But of course, if we have a holiness or sanctification theory which discourages self-examination, it's obvious we'll never know our own weakness. These things all work together, you see. Self-examination leads to a discovery of our weakness and our ignorance, and that drives us to prayer. Or let me put it like this in the third instance. Because of the subtlety and the power of the enemy, and our weakness and ignorance and frailty, or how vital it is that we should keep in touch constantly with our great leader and with the captain of our salvation. This is Paul's way of putting it, isn't it? It's exactly as if he's picturing here a great army. He tells them to pray not only for themselves, but for all the saints and for him. The moment we become Christians, we become members of the army of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the captain of our salvation. He's the leader of this mighty army. And he's waging a war against those forces of evil and of hell, the devil and his cohorts. Very well. What is more important than this? that we should be in constant touch with our great leader, in constant communication with the captain of our salvation, in order that we may in all things be directed by him. Now there are what I call these general reasons for constant prayer. They're so vital that I needs must repeat them again. The strength of the enemy, my weakness, to keep in touch with the general, the commanding officer, the captain, the Lord himself. But let me divide that up and put it in detail. A detailed reason for constant prayer, even having put on the whole armor of God, is this. That I must have strength to use the armor. And that is undoubtedly why the apostle puts them in this particular order. The armor in and of itself is of no value to me unless I can use it and employ it. 
You remember David when he went to fight Goliath, first of all put on Saul's armor, but he could do nothing with it. It was too big and too heavy for him, and he was more or less helpless. He had to take it off. It would have been his ruination. Now the armor is provided for us by God, and it is absolutely essential. Yes, but if I'm weak, how can I use the armor? I must be strong enough to use and to employ this armor. It's no use giving a man the finest armor in the world if he's weak and sickly, if he's running a temperature, or if he's suffering from some complaint which is sapping his vital energy. Yes, I must have my armor, but I must have the vigor and the ability and the power to use and to employ my armor. And that is something which I can only obtain by means of prayer. It's the way of linking myself to the source of life and of power, of energy and of vigor. Now let me give you a very wonderful illustration of this, uh, which we find in the Old Testament. Do you remember an occasion when the children of Israel were commanded to fight the Amalekites? And Joshua was appointed to lead the army. But while this fighting was going on, Moses was up on a hillside... And he was holding up his hands in prayer and in supplication to God. And while he did so, you remember, the army of Joshua was triumphant and victorious. But alas, poor Moses began to feel weak and his arms began to droop and to drop. He couldn't hold them up. And when his arms dropped, when the link was lost, the army began to fail and began to be defeated. And you remember the device that was adopted, Aaron and her both stood one each side so that Moses could support his arms on their shoulders. And while his arms were there in supplication, the army was victorious. Now it was an excellent army. And it had a marvelous commander-in-chief in Joshua. Yes, but you see, the best army in the world and the best commanding officer and the best strategy will not succeed unless this vital power is added in addition. Now that's the first reason, therefore, for praying. And as you read the book of the Acts of the Apostles, you'll find exactly the same thing. There's a great illustration of it in the fourth chapter. The disciples, the apostles, some of them had been arrested and thrown into prison, but they were delivered in a miraculous manner. And then they go back to the others and they begin to pray to God. They say, Behold the threatenings of these people. The Jews were against them, all were against them, used and instigated by Satan. What can we do, they say, so they turned to God in prayer. And they asked him to give them strength and power and ability. And they were filled with the Holy Ghost again. And the walls of the building began to shake. They were given this vital energy. Without it, the whole armor of God itself, wonderful though it is, is not sufficient. I must be able to use this power. Or let me put it to you like this in the second place. I need wisdom and guidance as to how the armor should be used. The moment I realized the nature of this conflict, I realized the importance of strategy. And that is something which is all important. I'm told in the pieces of the armor uh, what I do actually when the conflict is raging. Yes, but over and above all that, I need to understand something about this strategy. The Apostle Paul puts it in a very picturesque way when he says that we are not ignorant of his devices, referring to the enemy. 
And it's because we so often are ignorant of his devices that he gets us down. The apostle says, we, we know something about this. We have this wisdom. And James, you remember, in exhorting the people to whom he's writing, who are again suffering trials and tribulations, says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given unto him. And all the need of wisdom. We are confronted, I say, by this most subtle foe, and there is nothing more important than a spiritual strategy and understanding. I could easily elaborate this point speaking generally and speaking personally at this present hour. And I sometimes have felt that the thing we lack most of all is a true strategy. We are so content with apparent victories, and we don't realize the subtlety of the foe that is set against us. We need to have a long view and a large view. We need to see things as a whole. We need to understand the doctrine concerning the church in a wider and in a deeper sense. We need to draw certain distinctions which are absolutely vital. Otherwise we shall easily be confused. For instance, we need to draw the distinction between evangelism and revival and various other distinctions. It's because we don't see these differences that sometimes we are quite content and think that everything's happened when rarely, in a sense, we're only beginning. The need of wisdom, my friends. And wisdom is something that we can only obtain as we seek it of God in prayer, without wavering, with an unshakable faith, knowing that he has it to give us and is ready to give it. The Apostle Paul again puts this in these terms. We have the mind of Christ. And without the mind of Christ we shall fail in this battle. We shall be deluded, we shall be surprised and attacked unexpectedly. But with the mind of Christ we'll have an understanding. And that is only obtained as we pray and seek it more and more of God and ask him to bless us as we read his word. But let me put it in another form. There is a hymn, you remember, which puts it in this way. To keep your armor bright, attend with constant care. And I rather like that. In other words, we must not only have the armor, we must keep this armor bright. If it isn't bright, there'll be a day when it won't function. If rust comes in, they may develop a hole suddenly, or the joints won't fit together and there'll be a clash and something won't work as it should work. We've got to keep it in order, we've got to keep it polished, we've got to keep it bright, so that every part will be moving quite easily and there will be no joints sticking or something like that. Keep your armor bright, to keep your armor bright, attend with constant prayer. What's he mean? Well, if I understand it, it means something like this. That I have need constantly to keep my spirit warm. That I have to keep myself alive and alert and awake. Because if I'm not, I shall not be able to use this armor. And there, of course, is nothing which so enlivens the spirit as prayer. 
Now the danger is, I say, that you go through this armor and you say, yes, I've put on all this, I know the truth, I'm quite clear about the question of justification by faith only, I've got peace with God, I do know how to apply certain aspects of the truth in faith, I've got the blessed hope set before me, and I know the word of God. Very well, I'm all right. I say, if you rest on that alone, you will not be all right. Because the devil is able, even as we saw at the commencement of this consideration, to depress us and to make us feel lethargic. We feel dull in our spirits. We don't know what to do. There are days we all are conscious of this. One day you go and read your scripture and you seem to understand everything. The next day you are dull, you are lifeless, you're almost asleep as you're reading it. And though you're not asleep, you don't seem to be taking anything in. Haven't we all got these experiences? People say, I don't seem to be able to read as I used to. I can't do these things. A dullness comes into the spirit. Well, now the great antidote for that is prayer. Prayer enlivens. Mark you, you'll have to enliven yourself even to pray. I shall be dealing with that later. Where the apostle tells us uh, that we've got to watch unto this thing with all perseverance and supplication. But prayer rouses us. In other words, if I sit down in my study and I'm trying to read my scriptures and I'm in one of these dull moods which may be caused by physical conditions or by cares and anxieties and worries or a direct attack of the devil, what am I to do? Well, I mustn't be content with just sitting for an hour, let, let's say, for example, uh, at my work and reading my scripture and get up at the end and say, well, I've done my hour, I've read the scripture for an hour. That's no value at all. You can sit over the scripture for an hour, but nothing goes in. And in a sense, you've been wasting your time. What do you do? Well, this is what you do. You immediately turn to God in prayer. You say, my armor isn't bright at this point. This piece of mechanism isn't shining here. I shan't be able to use the word of God if I'm like this. Well, therefore, you turn to God and you pray to him and you ask him to enliven you, to rouse you, to take away this dull sloth and lethargy. You ask him to quicken your spirit and he'll do it. But you say, ah, oh, I may even feel lethargic in prayer. Well, fight it out upon your knees. Struggle, agonize. Don't give yourself this rest nor peace until you've found this. That's the value of prayer, and that is how you keep your armor bright. Because uh, we must never be content with a lifeless attitude towards any part of this armor of God. My faith must be living and active. I must be rejoicing in the Lord. I must be experiencing the peace. Now, that is how the men of prayer and the men of faith have always lived. They've never not allowed themselves to say, well, of course, I know I'm right about all these things, though I feel like this today. They say, I have no right to feel like that. I must have this communion with God. And they've struggled, they've fought, they've wrestled and fought and prayed until they've got it again. To keep your armor bright, attend with constant prayer. Let me give you another reason as I hurry on. Another reason is this. That if we are always engaged in prayer, and I shall explain later what that means, we shall not be idle. There is nothing that gives the devil a greater opportunity 
than to be uh, living in a state of vacuity and idleness in what we sometimes describe as wool gathering. Haven't you all experienced this? If you sit in a kind of vacant mood with your thoughts and your imaginations controlling you instead of you controlling them, the end of that invariably is not only to be attacked by the devil but to be defeated. There is nothing I say that so exposes us to these subtle onslaughts of the devil as spiritual idleness. Wandering of the mind, thoughts, ideas, suggestions, imaginations coming in and doing as they will with us. Now that, I say, is something that we must never allow. And the antidote to that again is prayer. Pray without ceasing. If you've got nothing to do, pray. Don't just sit and do nothing and let your mind wander and your thoughts stray here, there and everywhere. The devil will soon take charge. If you've got time on your hands, use it in praying. Fill yourself with thoughts of God. Talk to God. Pray without ceasing. It works like that. And by doing so, you're defeating the enemy. But still more important, let me put it like this. Prayer leads to knowledge of God. The more we pray, the more we know God. And the more we know God, the more we will love God. And you know that's the final way of defeating the devil. Haven't we all found this? When we've been in this state of nearness to God and loving him, temptations haven't their power, have they? Temptations lose their power when thou art nigh, says the hymn again. I need thee every hour, stay thou nearby. Why? Well, temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. When you're filled with loving thoughts of Christ and what he's done for you on the cross, a temptation comes and you hate it. But when you're not filled with such loving thoughts of him and knowledge of what he's done for you, your hatred of sin isn't as great, is it? Very well then, if you really want to defeat this enemy, attack him in that way. So fill yourself with loving thoughts of God that everything else becomes hateful and detestable. And the way to do that is to pray. You see, over and above reading the scriptures and reading about God and his grace and what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, you can have this personal communion, this personal fellowship. And that is what prayer really means. We are not simply indulging in our own thoughts. We are really acting on what all we believe and we are really speaking to the living God as in his presence. And as we do so, we feel his presence. We know his love. And as we are filled with this, we hate evil. That's the way to rout the devil and his cohorts. And you see, this is absolutely essential. The armor is more or less defensive. This is offensive. And another reason I can give you is this. Pray to God because of his ability to deal directly with the enemy and to deliver us out of his clutches. Why did the Lord teach us in the prayer to say, deliver us from evil? It's because it's true. And how often has God done that? Look at the Old Testament. Look at the deliverances God gave to his servants and to his people. 
When everything was against them, a mighty army threatening them, they prayed and in a night God routed the enemy with a pestilence or something else. But I needn't keep you. I've given you a perfect example of it in reading the 12th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles at the beginning. There it is, Peter the Apostle, the pivot of the church in a sense at that time, is arrested, thrown into prison, four quaternions of soldiers, four groups of four soldiers guarding him. The doors are locked, the great iron gate is barred and bolted, nothing can happen. There it is, utter hopelessness, what do they do? Prayer was made to God without ceasing of the church for him. And you remember what happened? The angel. And the chains fell off. And the doors opened. And the massive iron gate swung open on its own hinges. And Peter found himself to his own amazement out in the street. That's the reason for praying, my friends. The armor is excellent, but you know... God can forgive God can deliver us over and above that. When the armor even seems insufficient, God can come in and give a mighty deliverance. Therefore, let us pray without ceasing. Indeed, I'll sum it all up in this final word. All the rest that we do in the Christian life really leads to prayer. It seems to me that every piece of the armor leads to prayer. Take that girdle of truth. What's that? Well, it means that I accept this revelation of God. Well, if I accept this revelation of God, what do I do? Well, I believe God is my Father, and therefore I go and talk to Him as my Father. What about the breastplate of righteousness? What does that tell me? It just tells me that I'm saved by the blood of Christ, I'm justified by faith, that I have peace with God. Well, very well, then I go to God. What about this preparation of the gospel of peace? Exactly the same thing. What about the shield of faith? Well, it's still the same thing. All that I know about the truth should drive me to God. What about my blessed hope? Well, it tells me this, that though I'm still on earth, that I'm a child of God, I've got the spirit of adoption, I know that is there for me, therefore I again go to God. The sonship leads me to God. And the more I know the word of God, the more it teaches me and instructs me to have fellowship and communion with God. In other words, I use this argument. If I put on each piece of the whole armor of God truly, it will of necessity lead me to prayer. If I put them on mechanically, I shan't pray. I'll be content with the mechanics. But if I put them on vitally and rarely, every one of them will remind me that I'm a child and that he's my father. And I want to speak to him for the sake of speaking to him, apart from anything else. That is why I must pray. Our Lord prayed not simply because he wanted things, but because he enjoyed talking to his father. And it is to the extent that we know that he is our Father and that eternal life really means to know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. The more I realize that, and that's what the armor teaches me, the more I shall go to him to enjoy it, to know him, to glorify him, and to enjoy him forever.
Well, there, my friends, are the reasons why we should pray. I would like to leave you again with a question. How much do you pray? Have you realized the importance of these reasons? Are they working in us? Are they functioning in us? There is something wrong with a man who says that he believes that Christ has died for him, that he's a child of God who doesn't spend as much time as he can with his father. Here's a practical test to apply to our profession of faith. True faith must lead to prayer. Why don't we pray as we ought? Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.